Happy New Year. Welcome back to, uh, to Cornet Program's 2010 season. Uh, my name is Dan Albrick. I'm with Leopardo Construction. I'm the co-chair with programs along with Jeanette Outlaw with OFS. Stand up, Jeanette. Say hi. <laughs> um, okay, now it's, uh, I think it's officially this year, so we could pull out the, uh, the calendars or the PDAs and mark off the second Thursday of every month are our programs. So it's a, a re reoccurring event. Put in your calendar so we'll see you here and there's no confusion. Uh, that being said, our next program is uh, scheduled for February 11th. And our focus is going to be on, uh, on education and how these education uh, users have uh, utilized the real estate. Um, really, the past several months uh, in our economy, really the bright spot has been higher education. People uh, leaving, you know, are leaving work or looking to re-educate themselves and so forth. And um, join us as, as we explore how these uh, public and private institutions, charter schools and other sh uh, city of uh, Chicago educational in initiatives have benefited and will continue to take advantage of the current real estate market. Today, um, it's our annual event, Economic Outlook, Economic Forecast. It's, uh, we do podcast these things. I did take a listen to the podcast from, from last year's uh, presentation, and it's, uh, it's pretty scary how accurate these guys are. So um, the information will be also that they're providing will be on the website as well. Um, for you to uh, take a look at in a couple weeks, as well as the podcast. Um, so here today we have um, our speakers are Rick Mattoon and Scott Brave from the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. Um, please give them a round of applause and let's welcome Scott. Okay, is this okay? Okay, thank you. Uh, first of all, I wanna thank you all for having me here today. Um, I'm gonna to give a, a brief outlook, kind of a macroeconomic outlook, and then I'll yield to uh, my colleague, Rick Mattoon, to talk about the regional uh, outlook. Okay, so where do we stand today? Well, after a very rough 2009, we're now reaching the point where probably the case, the severe recession that we saw over the last two years is likely over. Um, one of the ways that you can see this, and and this is one of the things I work on, uh, is our National Activity Index. What this index is, is it's a weighted average of 85 different monthly indicators on national economic activity. And uh, it, it, it kind of, it's a little bit of a black box, admittedly, but it's, it's a very easy way to understand it. Uh, you can think of it in terms of the Goldilocks analogy. So it kind of measures the temperature of the, the U.S. economy in a way similar to uh, the porridge's temperature in the Goldilocks story. So uh, the way we look at it is a zero value of the index is just like the porridge that's just right. That's an economy that's growing at its historical growth rate. Uh, negative value is an economy that's a little cold. It's building up slack. That's when you tend to see recessions. And you can kind of see that in the graph. The series lines up very well with MBER recessions. And then a positive value of the index is an economy that's getting a little hot. And that's when inflationary pressures start to build up. So right now, we're definitely still in negative territory. Though we're right in the range that's normally it, it characterizes the beginning stages of a recovery. Uh, the, the value that we look at is negative 0.7, and we're hovering right around that right now. So that gives us some indication that the recession is probably over. The other good news is that the financial markets are starting to heal. And this here that I plotted for you is an index very similar to our national activity index. It's basically a weighted average of a bunch of different credit spreads and volatility measures. And the interpretation here is very similar to our activity index. A zero value is, is getting back to trend. 
that's an average level of financial stress. A positive value is, is above normal stress and a negative value is below normal. You can see that the last couple of years we've had a lot of stress and it's very much uh, an outlier in terms of the time series here. But right now we're back to about the stage where we were at the early part of this uh, crisis. So that, that offers some hope that the financial markets are, are also healing and some of the headwinds there are starting to uh, disappear. Okay, so if the recession is likely over and the financial markets are starting to heal, then the question is what kind of recovery can we expect to see? So I think there's an easy way to think about this. There's kind of three patterns that are typical for recoveries. There's the V-shaped pattern, which is very uh, normal for a very deep recession to be followed by a steep recovery. Uh, there's the checkmark pattern, which is kind of what most forecasters are expecting. We hit bottom and then we gradually grow over the coming year. And then there's the W-shaped recovery, and this is everyone's worst fear. Uh, this is where the case where we hit a bottom, we look like we're starting to improve, and then all of a sudden things deteriorate again. And a lot of forecasters who point to that kind of recovery, they, they look at the amount of fiscal and monetary stimulus that are currently out there, and they say when those things start to recede, this is a risk that, that could happen. Um, so I'm going to come down on the side of the checkmark shape recovery, and that's pretty much consistent with most forecasters out there. Uh, what these forecasters are thinking is that this was a very deep recession. A lot of the declines that we saw at the end of 2008 and the early part of 2009 were unexpected. Uh, there were also a significant number of financial headwinds leading into this. And so that they see businesses are still hesitant to invest and consumers are still reluctant to spend. And credit markets, while they're improving, are still tight. And those are all things that could contribute to a much slower recovery than normal. So let me show you what I mean by that. Uh, this is a plot of uh, real GDP growth. So the, the red bars here are expectations from a group of uh, business economists, prominent business economists. And these are for the, their January survey. Uh, what they're showing here is that they're expecting growth in the fourth quarter of this year of about 4%. That, that's a good number. And after you know, a couple, several quarters of very large declines leading up to this, you know, that, that's a positive. They're no longer seeing a recession. They're expecting positive growth. But what they're also not seeing is very strong growth. Normally, when you have a recession of this size, you can expect to see a very positive uh, rebounds shortly thereafter. And in fact, you kind of see that a little bit here um, after the 2001 recession. They're not really seeing that. They, they're seeing very stable but very solid growth, near trend. Uh, the problem with that is that for most people, um, near trend growth won't be enough to, to make a difference uh, for them. They won't be able to see it build up right away. And you can see that in the unemployment rate. At a 10% unemployment rate, we're very high right now. Uh, it's the highest since the early 1980s. And it's expected to continue to be high through 2011, uh, reaching 9% by the end of 2011. Uh, for most people, they're going to see this and they're going to think, there's no way the recession can be over. How can we have a you know, recession ending and unemployment still so high? But it's good to keep in mind that when I say the recession is likely over, that's a very technical definition. That means things are no longer declining doesn't necessarily mean things are improving very fast either. Uh, and it takes, you know, if, if the recovery is expected to be slow, it's going to take several quarters of positive growth before the unemployment rate starts to come down. And that, that's normal, that's a normal dynamics for the labor market. It tends to lag uh, behind the real sectors of the economy. Okay, so what's, what's driving this expectation of a slower growth or of a slower recovery um, that the blue chip is expecting? As you can see, I've, I've plotted the current expectation against deep recessions like the early 1980s and the mid-1970s. 
Um, those very sharp recessions and very sharp recoveries are well out of line with what's expected now. And the reason, the reason, oops, excuse me. The reason for this is primarily what forecasters see for consumption and investment. They don't expect the consumer to come back out and spend, uh, go gangbusters essentially right away. Uh, like we, we saw after the, the previous two deep recessions. Uh, those recoveries were very sharp uh, and it was led to a high degree by consumption. They also don't expect businesses to go out and invest right away. Uh, Non-residential fixed investment is actually expected to actually decline a little bit over the coming year before rebounding again in 2011. Okay, so having said that, there is positive news. I, I don't want to give the, the impression that there is no good news out there because there is definitely good news building up. I, I look at it as kind of building a base for a recovery right now. And we're seeing that definitely in the consumer demand side. Uh, numbers like retail sales, despite today's slightly negative report, you know, they've been on an upward trend in the last couple months. Car sales as well, and that's a very important indicator because uh, they've been trending down considerably over this recession. We saw a big bounce in light vehicle sales from the Cash for Clunkers program over the summer. And that, that was a temporary factor and it went away. But the good news is that even after that bounce, the, the trend has been upward. We're back now over you know, an 11 million unit uh, annual average. That, that's a pretty consistent uh, sign that things are starting to turn around for the consumer. Some of the fundamentals are also looking much better for consumer spending. Um, the amount of wealth very large amount of wealth that was lost in 2007 and 2008 in the stock market and in home prices. Uh, some of that, not much, but some is starting to come back. The stock market at least has, has made you know, some good gains this year. Uh, that, that's providing some boost to, to spending as well. Uh, and you can see that in the savings rate, which kind of peaked earlier over the summer. People were very worried about their, their uh, finances, their balance sheets, and starting to save more after years and years of saving very little. And the savings rates come off its peak in the last couple months. Uh, the other factor playing in here is the fiscal, fiscal stimulus has provided uh, some boost to incomes as well. And that's playing out in consumption. And even though the labor market isn't expected to recover very quickly, it is starting to stabilize. Job losses now are much slower, uh, much weaker than they were earlier in the year. And the unemployment rate has leveled off uh, after some very steep increases earlier in 2009. Now, our, our district, which covers um, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Iowa, has uh, tended to underperform the nation in terms of the labor market outcomes, and we're still seeing that now. Some of that is driven by Michigan. Michigan is definitely an outlier, being one of the, the worst labor markets in the country. Uh, but in general, this, this tends to be the case, and I think Rick will talk more about this in his regional outlook. So the bad news is even though job losses are slowing and the unemployment rate's starting to peak, um, hiring has not really started to pick up yet. And I think this is where the expectation for a slow labor market recovery comes from. Um, the number of unemployed compared to the number of vacant positions out there is actually at a historical high. Um, if you're looking for work now, there, there aren't many people out there that are they're willing to hire. Uh, there has been some increase in the last few months in temporary hires, and that tends to be a signal, an early signal of a labor market recovery. Businesses tend to hire people on a temporary basis for a few months in the early stages of a recovery. Keep some of those on full-time before moving to full-time hiring. And the unemployment insurance claims have also come down considerably uh, over the fall. Um, but despite you know, these gains, the unemployment rate is still very high, and it's likely to hold up there for a while. 
The other sign that uh, the consumer situation is starting to improve comes from the, the lending conditions uh, angle. Um, what I've shown here is, uh, comes from our senior loan officer survey. It's produced by the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. And what it essentially does is it surveys a number of bank loan officers and asks them their attitudes towards extending credit to consumers and to businesses as well. Um, this particular measure measures uh, their willingness to, to make consumer loans. So a positive value indicates that they're um, more likely to extend consumer credit. A negative value indicates that they're less likely. It's been pretty consistent that when they become more pessimistic, less likely to extend credit, uh, a recession has, has occurred. And we've, that's con definitely consistent with the, the current situation. The interesting factor is that it's now back to about a net neutral level. So consumer lending is getting to the point where we're no longer may necessarily maybe tightening, but we're not quite easing yet. Uh, so that, that's kind of a, a tipping point for the consumer credit situation. One of the factors playing into that is our, our, uh, our program to stimulate uh, activity in the securitized debt market, uh, the term asset-backed loan facility, another one of the long acronyms. Um, we've seen both credit spreads and uh, issuance in these markets jump since this program's been in, in effect. And that, that's relieved some of the stress on bank balance sheets and allowed them to extend a, a little more credit than they otherwise would have been able to. I think one of the markets that's definitely benefiting from uh, the, the, the lighter consumer credit uh, restriction is the residential investment side, so the housing market. We have seen some increases in building and housing starts from over the summer through the fall. Not a lot. We're still very much below the peaks uh, earlier in 05 and 06. Uh, it's still very much below what you would consider the historical average. The historical average would be somewhere around 1.1, 1.2 million um, units on an annual rate. Uh, at 500, 600 units an annual rate, we're well below that. Uh, and you have to expect that sooner or later we have to get back to the historical average. Uh, one of the things that, that's preventing that is obviously the home price declines that have occurred in the last several years. Uh, but in the last two, three months, home prices have risen a little bit. Uh, that's leveled off now, but uh, that, that is significant. The, the, the declines were pretty consistent for several years leading up to the, this fall. Uh, some of that might, may indicate an improvement in demand conditions. Some of that may also indicate um, certain tax incentives that are out there now, including the first-time home buyer tax credit, uh, which has been extended. So, I think where you're really seeing the improvement in the housing market is in terms of sales. Existing home sales have jumped uh, quite considerably uh, over the fall and, and through the winter. Um, not so much for new home sales, but even for new and existing home sales, the amount of inventory, the number of homes out there for sale uh, has declined quite considerably in, in the last several quarters. Uh, that, that's kind of what you need to see to see a recovery in housing. You need to see these inventories be brought back into line with their historical averages, which while they're not there yet, they're getting close to that level. Um, once they reach that level, I think it's, it's pretty fair to expect a pretty sustainable recovery in housing starts. The other side of this is uh, the, the credit situation. Mortgage rates are very low historically, and they continue to be very low historically. Uh, the, the Fed's program to purchase um, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac debt and mortgage-backed securities has definitely helped in this regard in, in stimulating some of the mortgage uh, market activity. Uh, but it's also the case that while it's still difficult to obtain a mortgage, and it's definitely still more difficult than it was before the recession, before the financial crisis, um, that's pulling back, scaling back a little bit. So uh, banks 
are a little bit more likely to extend a mortgage, uh, credit for a mortgage now than they would have been just a few quarters ago. That's the consumer side. The business side, I would say, is also starting to, to be a little bit more optimistic. And I, this is probably the, the main area where right now the growth is coming from uh, in terms of business investment, and that's inventories. So we're reaching a stage in the inventory cycle where we're starting to turn positive. Um, inventories are now much more in line with sales, uh, which is a positive because they were quite far out of line with sales when the unexpected declines occurred at the end of 2008 and the beginning of 2009. As businesses and fir you know, firms pull sale or inventories more in line with sales, they're more likely to build them back up, and that's what we've been seeing. Inventory reductions have slowed considerably uh, over the fall, and even with today's report, it looks like there might even be some inventory building going on. Uh, that's a positive for GDP growth. And we actually saw some of that in the third quarter. Even with very small inventory reductions, it was still a positive uh, contribution to GDP growth. And if inventories start to build, that would become even more of a positive for GDP. The downside is uh, in terms of equipment investment and structures investment, which I'll, I'll get to shortly. But equipment investment, the story is not quite as good. So we've seen some increases in orders. That's that's uh, quite clear. Core capital goods have been on an upward trend for the last several months, but they're still very low, and they're still m very much below where they were before the recession began. Um, that, that kind of is the signal that forecasters are looking at when they say that businesses are hesitant to invest. Um, the good thing is that what we are seeing now is that manufacturing activity has improved substantially. Uh, it started with the whole cash for, cash for clunkers bounce, but it's continued after that, and it's, it's spread outside just the auto industry. I would say the, the sore spot for business investment is non-residential construction, which is still on the decline. Uh, not too atypical. It tends to lag a little bit, uh, other indicators of business investment. But uh, it's still very much down from the highs in earlier in the year. And the fundamentals in this market are not really great at the moment. Um, you can see that in the, the vacancy rates that are increasing quite steadily, and also in prices and rents that are falling uh, quite significantly. And I, I would and venture a guess that this explains to a large degree why uh, the expectations are so low for business investment until 2011. Now, now part of that also has to be the credit conditions, business credit conditions. Uh, they play a big part in, in the, the business investment decision. Uh, the good thing that we have seen is that capital market conditions have improved considerably over the last several months. Corporate bond spreads, commercial paper market spreads are all very much down and very much near the levels that they were at before the recession began. Um, that's a positive. The negative side is that the banking system is still very stressed and you're still seeing loan delinquencies rise. And as long as delinquencies uh, continue to rise, banks will still need to put aside uh, money for, for loan losses. And that, that's contributed to credit remaining very tight. Uh, the the left-hand side graph here is a similar chart from our senior loan officer survey, which kind of gives you a sense of the, the standards that are being applied by banks to business and uh, business loan applications. And you can see that while uh, C&I lending has seen uh, some pullback in those standards, uh, commercial real estate has not seen quite as dramatic of a pullback. And credit is still especially tight for commercial real estate. This really comes down to the fact that there's just not much room on the balance sheet right now, on bank balance sheets for loans. Um, and you've seen credit declining quite considerably uh, over the last several quarters. 
commercial real estate loan and CNI lending uh, credit. The other negative for commercial real estate is the, the commercial mortgage-backed securities market. Um, issuance has been very, very, very low there for quite a while. In fact, there was no issuance for several um, quarters. Uh, we've seen some tick up in issuance, uh, some, of the, some of that having to do with our um, term asset-backed loan facility, but really nothing like what we saw before um, the financial crisis. And th that's just another way in which credit remains tight for businesses. Okay. If there are many negatives out there, and there's still many positives as well, one of the biggest positives is that there's still a lot of monetary policy accommodation left to work its way through the system. Um, this is a, a slide of our balance sheet, uh, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. What it shows is the outstanding total assets of the Fed. As we've increased our asset size, uh, that's provided a stimulus to the economy and to the, the credit markets. Um, while our special liquidity programs that kind of were put in place early in the crisis when uh, credit spreads tighten. Those have disappeared to some extent. Many will actually disappear in the next couple of months when they're, they're put uh, out of commission. Uh, that's a good sign. They were designed to disappear when conditions improved. Uh, to replace them, uh, the Fed is engaged in a, a series of large-scale asset purchases, buying Treasury securities, uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, debt, and mortgage-backed securities. And that's where the remaining stimulus really is coming from at this point. Now, when most people see this slide and they see this huge discontinuity, this huge jump in our balance sheet, the first thing they think of is inflation. Um, reasonably, um, the Fed, you know, we have a dual mandate. Not only are we supposed to maintain maximum sustainable employment, but we're also supposed to make sure the prices remain stable. Um, right now, inflation is very low historically. In fact, we're coming out of a period where inflation was actually slightly negative on a year-over-year -year basis. And core inflation, which strips out more volatile measures like food and energy prices, was itself also on a downward trend. Um, that's sort of stabilized. Food and energy prices have come back up in the last several months, and core prices have, have leveled off. I don't want to give the impression, though, that there is no in inflation risk out there, because uh, when we increase the money supply, that, that is definitely an inflation pressure. Uh, but what we've seen is that as we've contributed to uh, to the economy by raising the size of our balance sheet, uh, most of that money has not actually made it into the economy yet. Um, our monetary base, which kind of measures the currency that we see in circulation, and then the bank reserves, the reserves held by banks, has definitely jumped. That's the two green areas shown in this chart. Uh, but most of that is still sitting in banks in reserves. That's the light green area. As long as it sits as reserves in banks, it really provides very little inflationary pressure because it's not circulating. Uh, it provides a cushion for the banks um, in terms of things getting worse. Uh, it keeps them from curtailing credit even more than they already have. Uh, but it doesn't provide an inflationary pressure until it starts to be released. Um, that's going to be very important in the, in the coming years in terms of the inflation outlook, is making sure that what's sitting currently in banks in re excess reserves doesn't make its way out into the economy too quickly uh, to, to spur an inflation episode. And the Fed, in this regard, has developed several new facilities over the past couple of years to kind of deal with this issue, this issue when it arises. Uh, one of these is that we are now able to pay interest on these excess reserves. So we can kind of incentivize the banks to keep this money in reserve and, and not uh, spend it or too quickly. Another one that's been recently talked about and which is used by central banks overseas is a, a term deposit facility where we allow banks to keep 
uh, their excess reserves on deposit with us for an extended period of time uh, in return for a, an interest rate payment. The other factor really leaning against the, the high inflation story right now is the fact that even though things are starting to improve, the amount of slack still in the economy is very high. And you can still see that in our national activity index. We're still very negative, um, very much below zero. There's still idle resources out there that have yet to be put back to use. Uh, it's really a matter of how quickly they're put back to use as to how quickly uh, monetary accommodation needs to be pulled back. And as long as the expectation is for a checkmark recovery, um, slowly pulling that accommodation back makes a lot of sense. Also, I, I guess for inflation it's a positive. Um, wage pressures right now are minimal. Um, unit labor costs are not rising very quickly and productivity remains very high. Uh, these are also things that suggest that uh, right now inflation might not be as much of a concern. Okay, so to summarize before I yield to Rick to talk about the regional outlook, uh, what's expected is for 2010 is a relatively slow recovery. Um, there's a lot of monetary and fiscal stimulus out there that's supporting this. We expect to further support this, but tight credit conditions, lingering uncertainty, and the need for balance sheet repair, both by banks and households, are all significant headwinds that suggest we won't see the typical V-shape that we normally would expect. Uh, but for most people, the, the end of the recession, the early stages of the recovery aren't going to look very much different than the recession itself because the labor market is going to take time to heal. Un unemployment is only expected to come down very slowly and banks have more stressful times ahead. So even though improvements have been made in the credit markets, making further improvements is going to be a little difficult until those um, times have passed. Um, in terms of the inflation outlook, most measures of slack like our national activity index, the unemployment rate, uh, capacity utilization, they all suggest that, uh, a downside risk to inflation. But we know that we've increased the money supply, or potentially increased the money supply quite a bit. Uh, and that, that that aggressive monetary policy should provide accommodation to stimulate growth. Um, the big question going forward is, will these inflation trends remain subdued? And that depends on the Fed, obviously, to adjust policy appropriately as uh, the economy continues to grow. Okay. I'll yield to Rick now. Thanks, Scott. And I also want to add my uh, thank you for inviting us back again to talk to you uh, good folks again. Um, I, I do want to compliment you. You're the only group that actually has the guts to actually give two economists uh, the opportunity to present. Um, as, as most of you probably realize, economists were not known as particularly scintillating speakers. And I always like to remind everybody that there's an old joke in the economics profession, which is you basically decide to become an economist when you, you realize you don't have quite enough personality to be either an accountant or an actuary. All right? um, so, so that being said, um, my goal after Scott gave that, that um, wonderful presentation on the macro economy is to talk, bring us down a little bit more to Chicago and Illinois' economy, a little bit more of what's happening at the regional. And then I'm going to have a final part of this where I'm going to talk specifically about commercial real estate. So this is sort of my bringing you know, coal to Newcastle part of this, since you probably know a whole lot more about commercial real estate than I do. Um, but the thing I want to do is, is sort of like give you an idea as to where I'm coming from. Is, is, I want to put what's happening in Illinois and in Chicago in the context of trying to separate out 
those things which are affected with this particular part of the business cycle, essentially what's happened because of the recession. And those things structurally, you could say, were happening within Chicago and Illinois before the recession. So I want to be able to sort of disentangle those two things. So we can say, well, how is Illinois and Chicago doing before we got into this recession? And how much of it has been exacerbated by the specific conditions that are happening right now? So I want to step back a little and first give you a sense of what does the Illinois economy look like, all right? So how can we think of it in terms of how it would perform relative to the US, relative to the Midwest? And this is where, as Scott said, if, if he wasn't depressing enough for you, what I'm about to say is going to be really depressing. Um, so this is the way Illinois' economy is structured. Of any state in the country, we have almost exactly the same economic composition as the rest of the US economy. So if you put up, which I'm going to show you, the shares of where our industry base is, we almost exactly mirror the US economy. Um, there's a clear state uh, split between downstate and Chicago. And we're highly linked in terms of our trade patterns with other Midwestern states, which is partially going to explain sort of how we're performing right now. Um, the state has a lot of significant assets, but a lot of our positions are being fairly heavily challenged. And it suggests in some ways, and if I want to be provocative, I'm going to say that Illinois and Chicago is a little bit at sort of an inflection point right now in terms of its development. Um, again, if you look at, the, at Illinois, it looks like the US, but it doesn't behave like the US. And this is something that regional economists have noted for some time. And yet we've had a hard time explaining why this is the case. And much of this is explained by work done by Jeff Hewings at the University of Illinois. Um, I'm going to use some of his material that he's shown. And one of the things that Jeff really emphasizes is you have to look at who Illinois companies trade with, all right? So if you look at us as you think of us as an economy and how we trade with external partners, what Jeff's work has suggested is we trade very heavily with other states in the Midwest. Illinois' largest trading partner by far is Ohio, all right, by a factor of 10 over any other foreign country or any other place. So if Ohio's economy is in trouble, Illinois' economy is going to reflect that sort of behavior. And Jeff has really spent a lot of time talking about the increasing integration of the Midwest economy as being a factor for explaining the sort of the behavior of it. Um, so that's part of it. The other issue that you could suggest is we just have the wrong firms in the, in the specific industry. So it's like we have the same shares as the US, we just have sort of the dog firms within those particular industries. So not to pick on anyone in particular, you can think of this in terms of the auto industry, all right? If the auto industry has had a hard time, we certainly have had the part of the auto industry that has underperformed the rest of it, all right? By having what once was the big three, then became the Detroit three, and then became guys who have health and, and uh, you know, insurance programs and happen to make cars, all right? So, um, so if you look at it that way, that explains you know, some of what may be going on. So here's, here's my graph on showing you the uh, Illinois economy. And, and like any good economist, this is going to be completely illegible, most of my graphs to you. But um, anyway, if you look at the dark blue bars on the bottom, that's the Illinois economy in 1980. And what you can see there, the big takeaway from this, is manufacturing consisted of almost 25% of our economic activity in 1980. By 2007, the last year we have complete data, um, it had fallen to 12.6%, roughly about the same as the US. So Illinois is not a manufacturing state. We're not like Indiana, we're not like Michigan. If you look at where all the growth has occurred, it's occurred in services and finance, insurance, and real estate. And if you look at just the green and the lighter blue bars, as you'll see, Illinois almost exactly matches the US averages for all these industry concentrations. So we're very much structured like the rest of the country. Um, however, I'll put all these up. 
As Jeff's work has pointed out, Illinois' performance, however, has been really disappointing, particularly over the most recent cycle. So if you look at the things right now, one of the questions that Jeff said that he was often asked is, when will Illinois recover from um, the recession? And his question always is, which recession? Um, if you look at just the job per performance, Illinois never recovered from the 2000 recession, the 2001 recession. Um, we are, in fact, at lower employment levels than we were during, the, uh, during that period of time. So Illinois has been very much of a laggard coming out of this recession. The effect this has had has been really sort of pronounced. As Jeff has pointed out, this translates into a lot of loss of state income tax revenue, sales tax revenue. Um, if you look at where we are right now, we have an employment base that's the same as we were in 1997 in terms of the number of jobs in the state. And five out of 10 sectors, in fact, have employment levels that are below that of 1990, all right? So we've had this sort of very protracted period of really poor performance. And Jeff's estimates suggest that um, Illinois' unemployment will peak at around 11.6% um, during this coming year. So there's sort of more pain ahead. Now, this graph shows you how badly Illinois has performed. Um, Illinois has added jobs at 40% of the national average um, over this period of time starting in the 1990s. As you can see, we've even underperformed the rest of the Midwest, all right? So even in a slow-growing region, we've been a, a very much of a laggard in terms of our behavior. And um, that should be of considerable concern as you look at sort of what was happening. Because the point here is, is that structurally, we were already doing poorly before this recession happened, all right? So things got worse with the recession, but we already weren't doing that well prior to this. Okay, so is there any good news out of this whole um, sort of story? Um, there's a couple of pieces of good news. One is we are less reliant on manufacturing, and increasingly the part of the manufacturing industries that we have in many cases are category leaders. So you have Caterpillar, you have Deere, you have other manufacturers that are really set up to do very well in particularly export-related um, opportunities. And so those things can snap back pretty well. We have less of an exposure to financial services firms than, say, New York City. So again, sort of the disruptive effect of what's happened on Wall Street is going to be somewhat less here. One of the things that, that Illinois, and particularly Chicago, has going for it long term is really its ability to attract talent. Um, academic economists, particularly Ed Glazer at Harvard, really talks about the only determinant of economic growth he believes going forward for an economy is its ability to attract high quality human capital. And that's one of the things that Illinois does very well at, particularly relative to other Midwestern states. And Chicago does very well at this. Um, we have an excellent higher education system, um, but we do a lousy job at commercializing what um, is invented at the various um, universities around here. And that's something that, again, is a room for us to have some improvement. Probably if I had one major concern overhanging Illinois at this point, it's the state's fiscal condition, all right? Um, depending on which estimate you have, the official estimate has the state budget deficit at $11 billion. Um, the commercial club this week came out with their report. They estimate that the deficit is actually about $14 billion on a uh, current year basis. They estimate that the accumulated deficit is over $120 billion if you count in pension expenses and other things that have been put off. And just to give you a sense of the magnitude of that, that works out to $26,000 per household, all right, is the debt uh, facing the state of Illinois at this point. And it's hard to suggest how that's going to have any sort of a positive effect moving forward for the state of Illinois. 
Um, so that's going to be one of the things that's really going to be one of the issues that's going to be a running theme for several years as we sort of try to restructure these um, very high debts that we've run up, in, in particularly in, in the government sector. Um, to give you my positive news thing, this is my only slide on showing you our ability to attract human capital, is again, I think this is long run, probably one of the greatest strengths that Illinois has and Chicago has. The little red box is Illinois, and the way to interpret this graph is if you're in that quadrant, you're both a high producer of college-educated people and you attract college-educated people. So you are essentially an importer of college talent. And Illinois and Minnesota, as you'll notice, are the only two Midwestern states in that particular um, quadrant. If you look at most of the Midwestern states, they're in this brain drain category. Um, they're high producers of human capital, but they export it. Um, and even worse is a state like Ohio, which is not a particularly high producer, and also exports what, what they have. Um, so if you look at that, this is one indication that, you know, again, we're a little bit positioned to take advantage of something that's really important in terms of the future. So turning to Chicago. Um, Chicago finances are almost equally bad as those of the state. Um, if you look at it right now, tax revenues are extremely soft. Um, we got into a situation where we were very dependent, particularly on real estate-related um, taxes for funding a lot of the growth in, in uh, city budgets. And um, we're running out of things to sell, all right, which has been one of our measures of doing this, or leasing things. You know, Midway Airport didn't quite make it all the way through last year, but I'm sure it's going to be tried again. Um, the parking meters, the Skyway, um, you know, it, it's getting a point. This is obviously a long-term solution for meeting um, the structural needs of, of city government. Um, like most sectors, like most places in the country, um, Chicago um, saw declines that were very broad-based in this recession. And one of the things that was really different was, is you saw job declines even in things like education and healthcare, areas where you almost never see job declines, which just shows you how um, broad-based this decline was. And the, the question I sort of pose to you guys is, 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 has Chicago sort of lost its mojo, all right? So this is the, you know, Austin Powers part of the presentation. Um, so, you know, if you think of the things we have, I mean, we lost the Olympics and particularly, you know, um, you know, uh, ignoble fashion going out in the first round. Oprah announced she's leaving. Um, you know, we've been losing convention business. There's been a lot of sort of negative news. And it's sort of like the sense of like, well, maybe Chicago, you know, the spire hasn't gone forward like people thought it would. Uh, there's a sense in which, you know, maybe Chicago's lost some of the dynamism that it had um, during the 1990s and the early 2000s. Um, but to show you just how, how bleak things have been, these are just changes in employment levels. Um, and what you should pay attention to is the change from October 08 to October 09. These are the most recent available. As you can see, construction's lost about 14% of its jobs, manufacturing 8.8. Um, total private sector employment's down 4.9%. As you can see, there's not a positive sector in here. And if you go to the other areas, which again have traditionally done better during recessions, information jobs are down 7.6%, financial activities 6.1%. As I say, even education and health are down 1.1%. Um, so you've had this sort of very unusual situation which there hasn't been sort of a safe harbor, a part of the economy that has performed better during this particular cycle. Now, if you look at other Chicago employment indica economic indicators, um, we're not doing a whole lot better there. Um, you've seen in just a year a 4.1% jump in the unemployment rate for the city. Um, housing starts are down throughout the Midwest. Um, weak office availability, the vacancy rates, um, net office absorption is negative. Um, the only good news has been consumer uh, prices have been well contained. And consumer confidence has shown a little bit of improvement. 
But again, there's not really a sector in which you can point to and say, like, well, there seems some sort of you know, inherent strength in that particular part of Chicago's economy at this point. So what's the implication for this in terms of for real estate? Okay, so the big issue for real estate, and particularly commercial real estate right now, is economists are having a hard time figuring out where demand's gonna come from, all right? There's just simply, again, when Scott was talking about you know, output gaps and things like that, it's a situation where there's just a lot of product on the market and it's not really clear who's gonna snap this up. Um, with slow employment recovery, there's going to be very limited need for additional office space. So that's going to put downward pressure. There's some belief that this will even put more pressure on suburban markets because downtown space will become relatively cheap relative to where it is historically. So you could actually move people more into the central city and away from the suburban um, locations unless the suburban prices adjust even further. Um, expectations for real estate investors are going to change pretty dramatically. Part of it is is looking at what are normal returns going to look like in the sector. I mean, what should you be expecting after this very, very frothy period of time? And obviously, as long as you're not having the pattern of cap rate compression for any period of time, it's going to be harder and harder to make a lot of these financial deals pencil out any longer. Um, to see how dramatic the drop has been, I, I took this one figure from Real Capital Analytics that reports that you know, commercial real estate transactions fell from $489 billion in 2007 to $42 billion in 2009. All right? So I mean, that's pretty much of an eviscerated market in terms of that. Um, the second biggest issue out there is obviously refinancing all the commercial real estate that's already out there. And Deutsche Bank, I, I picked this because I like their slogan when they, when they described it, is of the $1.4 trillion in commercial real estate um, that's going to need to be refinanced by 2013, they suggest that 65% of this will be hard to do, which I thought was a very technical term to do it. So um, yeah, so hard, hard to do, all right, 65% of that. Um, so what, what are the implications that also are making, again, this, this environment so hard to do, how to, to pull these things off? Well, part of it is stuff that Scott talked about, which is lending's going to be particularly conservative. Um, financial institutions are going to be expected to hold larger capital margins than they have in the past. This is going to put pressure on them to sort of keep more money in-house and less money out, out in the market in terms of that. Um, that's going to become probably more of a new normal for financial institutions. Bank failures are likely to increase um, throughout this period of time, particularly regional and smaller banks, which have large commercial real estate portfolios. And in many cases, even when these banks recover, they're going to be in a hard position because this was such an uh, important part of their profits in the past. So they're going to have a slow trajectory out as this particular part of their, uh, their uh, portfolio doesn't perform as it has in the past. You know, what are some of the ways in which people are talking about how can this be helped or how can we sort of you know, work this out better. Um, one phrase that's being thrown around a lot is called pretend and extend, which is, this, which is essentially the lender essentially pretends that the building's still worth what you said it was worth, and they extend the loan on the same terms, all right? Now, the, the, the clear problem with pretend and extend is obviously regulators have to agree that that's a prudent policy. Um, and the other thing is, is, again, it's in this very sort of fluctuating market. It's hard to get exactly what the value is for a lot of these buildings. Um, some have suggested that sovereign funds will come to the rescue, and the idea is, is if you look at you know, um, either uh, some of the Arab countries, some of the Asian countries, countries with large sovereign funds, then this would be an opportunity for them to buy up a lot of real estate at fairly favorable terms, and there's a sense in which they could enter these markets because they have a lot of liquidity uh, potentially to do that. Um, one interesting proposal um, concerns pension funds. Um, 
while pension funds are, are on the, these are government pension funds, public pension funds, while they're massively underfunded on sort of a national basis, um, they do have the advantage that they can invest in things and hold them for a long time because all they have to do is meet the current payment to their pensioners, not necessarily the future payment. There was a proposal floated in Washington which suggested that what should happen is there should be some sort of a federal guarantee to pension funds to buy commercial real estate um, with the idea that they would guarantee them whatever their historic return is in their fund. And if they don't make that return over time, that then they would be backfilled by the US government. They'd fill in the gap. So if they were, said they had an 8% historic return, the US government would guarantee them the 8%. And in the meantime, they'd be able to buy the commercial real estate, hold it for a longer period of time until there was some sort of a recovery. Um, so that's one of the ideas. The, the basic point is, is you need very, very patient investors in this market um, because it won't take a lot of recovery for a lot of these deals to sort of come back, all right? So you don't have to have a huge gain in commercial real estate prices to make a lot of these things bankable, but you have to be in a situation where the person doesn't need liquidity right now. Um, so one of the issues is, is looking for who's going to be the patient investors in this particular market. So um, any good news for Chicago out of this? Um, Okay, so if you look at Chicago's real estate market specifically, um, we're not as overbuilt as we were in previous cycles, um, clearly with the exception of maybe condos. Um, we aren't Miami or Phoenix at this point in terms of the, its behavior. Um, retail's a mess, but it's a mess everywhere. Um, the most recent figures from RES, REIS suggested that December strip mall vacancies in the Chicago area were 11.5%. It's the highest since 1980, but the U.S. was 106 so... Um, that isn't, isn't you know, good news or bad news. Uh, one figure that came out today, which again suggests just how much pressure retail sales is under, is um, U.S. retail sales fell 6.2%, um, all right, um, this year for the entire year, which is a fairly unusual thing um, given U.S. consumer behavior. Um, Chicago prices, when it comes to real estate, commercial real estate, are still cheap. Um, so that makes us a place where, if, again, if you're looking for sort of big city amenities um, at a fairly bargain price, Chicago still offers that relative to other places. Um, certain market niches probably are still going to do okay. So, you know, dorms, it was interesting, you're going to have a conversation about higher education. Higher education is one area where there's some opportunity. Uh, Mixed-use infill, transit-oriented development, medical offices, um, and infrastructure and green buildings um, are still looking okay. Um, you can still make money if you're a good property manager. It's just that's not a particularly sexy thing to do. I mean, like, um, when I teach at Kellogg, you know, one of the things the students will say is like, well, you, know, you probably didn't come to Kellogg to become a property manager. But the reality is, is right now that's the place you're going to find yourself in the interim because the, sort of the financing opportunities are less than they were in the past. Um, and, but most of all, you should realize it's a cycle, all right? And again, you know, most of the economists who have looked at this have said even a modest gain in prices really makes a lot of this stuff go away. Um, so it's a cycle, and these prices will come back. I mean, there's underlying value in a lot of this um, commercial real estate, so it's just a matter of being able to time out the cycle. And again, if you look at Chicago as this relative bargain proposition, again, average effective rents, um, Chicago at $21, as you can see, is still well below many of the other sort of national cities and you know, puts us in the league with like you know, Houston's and Philadelphia, and I'd argue that we're a more desirable place than either Houston or Philadelphia to have your business, but maybe I'm just being parochial. Um, so concluding thoughts, um, Illinois' economic performance was lagging even before we got into this um, 
recession, and the recession has done nothing to sort of help our relative position. Um, part of this may be because we're so heavily integrated with a Midwest region that's been disproportionately hit during this recession, and maybe some of that will go away. Um, some of it may have to do with sort of reorienting um, some of our thinking about how we position ourselves in the future in terms of which industries will represent growth for our economy. Um, Chicago is an interesting case because the Economist did a cover story in 2006 on Chicago, and the headline was um, Chicago, a success story. And in it, they really marveled at how effective Chicago had been at sort of being this sort of Midwestern beacon, that it had all these sort of positive factors. But at the very end of it, the author of it, really suggested that maybe this was as good as it gets for Chicago, that really in many ways all the factors that he saw that had coalesced in 2006 to make Chicago so favorable were things that were actually were sort of in decline or beginning to decline. Then he suggested that maybe in the long run that Chicago needed to reassess its position and figure out how to sort of you know, take advantage of what was this very good period and how to move forward more effectively. Um, so with that, Scott and I are happy to take any questions you have, and thank you again for your uh, time and attention. So. Uh, very informative. Um, question for you. One of the issues that came up is this whole sort of relationship between uh, lending and a worry about inflation. You know, it seems like a lot of the issues could be helped um, in the economy by loosening up money, you know, getting that out into the market so that um, you can stimulate the economy. But I think it was Scott that brought up this idea that if you do that too fast, you run into inflation issues. Can you sort of explain a little bit more of um, that dynamic and, um, you know, what the risks are? Sure. Uh, so the basic idea of inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. Uh, so yeah, I agree, it, stimulating lending would be a positive for growth, uh, but you don't want growth to be too fast. Uh, the, if you get growth too fast, you get too much money chasing too few goods, prices are going to start to rise as well. Uh, the problem with a significant jump in inflation is that factors into people's expectations of future inflation. If people see a very steep increase in inflation, they might come to expect that future inflation is also going to be very high, and that makes it very difficult for the Fed to rein that back in. Uh, so I agree. You do want to see some of that money that I talked about sitting in excess reserves enter into the economy. You just don't want to see necessarily all of it right away enter uh, because it could create conditions that would be very difficult for us to unwind later on. Right. Very much so. In fact, in the early 80s V-shape or the 70s V-shape, uh, monetary policy during those times would have been very different. Um, at least during the early 80s, we were coming out of or just reaching the top of a very big tightening cycle. Uh, we kept that tightening cycle in place for an extended period. Uh, rec the recovery happened after that. That was kind of breaking the inflation cycle that began in the 1970s, uh, which con contributed to it that way. So the, the worry would be uh, you could create the V-shape, but then you have to deal with the aftermath, and that would be maybe higher inflation that might be difficult to unwind. The only way to unwind that would then be to pull the money supply in very quickly 
and that could generate a drop in output again. So what, what you're looking for is to, it's our dual mandate. It's a very difficult balance. You want to balance the, the rate of growth relative to the economy's potential rate of growth, which is really indicated by productivity uh, over the long run, and, and, and the supply of money that's out there to support these investment activities. Uh, so it's, it's, not, yeah, it's not a very easy question to answer. Um, you could, like I said, generate the V, but then you have to deal with the aftermath, which may be just uh, be worse than, than what you occurred. Hello. Uh, can either one of you elaborate on the uh, adjustment made in September or October of 2009, uh, uh, federal adjustment with regard to commercial property owners approaching their lender and trying to do a refinance without it being a taxable event? There was a an adjustment made to free that up and, and make the process uh, easier. Um, I'm not. Yeah, familiar. neither of us are conversant enough now. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, it was it was talked it was mentioned in the Wall Street several times, and it was just trying to allow at a minimum communication between lender and property owner to refinance and get into talks without turning it into a taxable event. And there was a, a bill passed to make that happen, uh, along with the TEL scenario and yeah. traditional lending or refinancing. I, I think you're going to see a lot more of that. I think that that's the solution to much of what's going on in commercial real estate now. It's, it's got to be a workout process. Well, it seemed like um, a simple, uh, logical answer that should have been done a long time ago, and, and it caught... Unfortunately, that's the way a lot of policy works. Hello. All right, bottom line, jobs. We need jobs. All right, you guys both get a phone call from our president. He wants to schedule a meeting with the two of you. The two of you are tasked with coming in with two to three real specific pieces of advice to give to our president to generate jobs throughout this country. And I want to hear real specific <laughs> That's very questions that you would give to our president because what's happening is not generating the jobs quick right. enough to help out all of these areas. Jobs will solve a lot of the problems that your stats just showed us. So what would you be telling our president? You want to start with yeah, that? I'll, yeah, we'll start. Yeah, okay. okay. Um, I mean, I, I, it's, it's a really good question. You're right, and it, it should be a specific answer. I mean, the, the, the first problem and part of the lags in the last several recessions coming out of this has been a mismatch between the skills of the people who are getting unemployed and, and what jobs are being created. So one of the problems with this is, is that for particularly like now, I mean, over 50% of the job losses or 40% of the job losses have been in construction and manufacturing in this recession. Now, the reality is in many cases, many of those jobs aren't coming back, all right? So unless you created sort of an artificial construction program or something like that, you're not going to be able to re-employ a lot of those people. So a clear component of that is, is how do you match people better with where job creation is occurring? And that's unfortunately not a one-year process. I mean, that's a, that's a difficult, you know, process working out in the future. You know, for short-term, you know, um, situations, I, I think that you can do 
certain things to try, you know, again, sort of create demand in certain areas. I mean, we, you know, I mean, Scott said, you know, cash for clunkers, which most economists, I mean, from an academic point of view, um, hated as a program um, for the most part, was successful at stimulating demand and putting people back on the line at a number of the, you know, companies, um, auto companies. You could have something like they've talked about um, cash for clockers as being one of those, which would be a good way in which you could Two, two things, which is for most homeowners, they don't see the payoff fast enough in doing sort of green retrofitting to their house. You could do this, so you can employ a lot of people fairly quickly to sort of get into that kind of thing. Um, and there could be some sort of you know, longer term economic benefit. Um, you know, the other issues are in the other markets, they'll sort of reset once demand comes back. But the other issue, which I think Scott really pointed out so well, is there's just so much slack demand right now in the economy that that's part of why you're not seeing the rehiring because firms can do what they can do with their current workforce. They don't have to bring additional people in to do that until they see some sort of a, a faster recovery. So that's not as specific as you want, um, but it's, as I say, it explains why there's, there's no way you can just say sort of like, well, if we just did a major sort of initiative in this area, we'd soak up all the unemployed at this point. It, it's really hard to do that. So. Scott? You I, to? I won't add anything to that. That's perfect. Okay. <laughs> <Okay>. Scott. <laughs> um, been somewhat skeptical on the uh, the housing rebound and how quickly that seemed to happen. I wanted to throw a, a couple things at you and see if um, you can tell me I'm all wet or it seems to be on the right track. One, it doesn't seem that the delinquency numbers at banks that they're pushing through those properties and they're actually hitting the market, so there seems to be somewhat of a shadow supply there. The other, it seems a lot of the new housing purchases have been all cash buyers, which to me tells our speculators and investors it's not gonna help the long term. And I guess the third area of concern in housing is something like Chicago and the condo glut. Yeah. I would perfectly agree with all those. Yeah. In fact, I would say my assessment of the housing recovery is a little bit more pessimistic than others. Uh, for, for many of the reasons you just mentioned. Um, but also just be, I think there's a general hangover effect in, in that industry. Builders are just not going to build yeah. until they are absolutely certain that all those issues are, are over. Um, they've been burned too badly uh, to, to start you know, building now, even with the little bit of a recover that we've had. I just don't see that happening for an extended period. Yeah, yeah and I, I would also agree with you. I mean, I'd love to be able to throw water on what you just said, but I can't. Um, I mean, there was a, there was a, a prior presentation I did this, this graph where it showed uh, foreclosure rates in 2008, and then it contrasted to what's happened in 2009. You see this very stark experience where in 2008 it was very heavily concentrated in four states, which were you know, clearly speculative overbuilding states, where you know, that was what was getting cleared out. By 2009, you saw the sort of contagion effect as a weak economy, people being put out of jobs, you know, really spiked um, foreclosure rates in these other markets where it had nothing to do with the supply of housing in the market. It was just people were losing their jobs and couldn't afford the houses any longer. Um, so it was a more, you know, almost a more you know, pernicious underlying problem there. And you know, until you get this, sort of, you know, this foreclosure part of it sort of sorted out, that's always going to put downward pressure on markets. I mean, you know, last year I remember the, the worst statistic I saw was Detroit, which had October, the uh, average sale price of a house in Detroit was $18,000. Um, know, so I mean, if you get to that point of point, I mean, that's essentially saying the house is, is valueless at that point. I mean, the land's got to be worth more than $18,000. In, res in response to the last gentleman's question about what to tell his president when he goes back, um, <laughs> I did get this answer from a financial specialist on Sunday morning. 
But the one thing they ask, they do identify is there's no new surge of technology or industry like Silicon Valley 15 or 18 years ago bringing cell phones to the world or laptops. And, um, you know, no matter, regardless of how many dot-coms did bust, there was a surge of new industry that loosened up some money where people invested. And many people did get some return on their investment, and many of them did stay. And that was the, uh, the requirement to break through economic lots. Does anyone, do you guys see anything in the making, any new industries that seem to be? Uh, uh, that obviously would, would be a big uh, spark to the economy. I think the problem is with that, and I, people tend to look at those things in hindsight, right? It's easy to, to pinpoint certain industries now that were the impetus out of things. You, you can't tell that ahead of time. Um, if, if you could, you'd be very, very, very wealthy. Um, yeah, right. But I, I think that generally, you know, the way the conditions are shaping up now, businesses have become very lean. We're, our productivity is still very high. I think we're learning a lot out of this recession, restructuring of the economy. I think it, it actually puts us in a good place going forward. Uh, it, as long as we don't make the business investment environment so onerous that nobody wants to invest anymore, uh, yeah, I think the conditions are there to generate the next kind of um, boom. Uh, quick question. You showed the slides that showed the senior loan officers of the banks and their confidence had been going up in the last few months. And what are some of the indicators that those senior loan officers are going to be looking for to, uh, I guess, increase the loans not only to residential but to maybe commercial? Or just what are some of the indicators they're looking for? And what is it going to take on a maybe macro level to just improve the overall lending environment? Uh, the answer for that might not be what you want to hear, but uh, for a lot of consumer lending, um, the unemployment rate is what uh, loan officers are going to be looking at. Um, delinquencies, foreclosures, things like that, they tend to follow the unemployment rate very closely. Uh, so is the unemployment rate is the jobs picture, which is the million dollar question, like you said. As um, that starts to, uh, to uh, recover, you're going to see the credit markets recover. In fact, I, I kind of like to think of it now where we're at the stage if early on in the recession, it was the credit markets leading the downturn in the real economy, you know, going into the recession, now we're almost at the stage where the reverse is going to happen. As the real economy starts to get built back up, you're going to see the, the banking system and the financial markets uh, take their next step forward. That, I, and I realize that's not a very satisfactory answer. But. Um, speaking of unemployment, and I'm a soon-to-be graduate from business school, um, I think last week the front cover of Business Week spoke about the, un the unemployment market and it being a temporary workforce going forward where businesses are going to be looking to hire people of high skill level for a very short period of time for projects. Do you see that going forward? Because they did speak that that has been the trend um, leading up to 2009. Do you think that's going to be the job outlook for us going forward? It's definitely the case that temporary hiring tends to pick up in the early stages of re recovery. That seems to be what firms do. They're more willing to, to bring people on temporarily before they commit to making that decision to bring uh, people on permanently. Uh, and we're already seeing that now. The last several months, the temporary hiring has, has picked up quite substantially. Um, I, I could say that that's probably a trend that's going to continue in, into 2010. And, and I also think you identify another trend, which is um, businesses treating labor as much more of a, 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 a part of their balance sheet that can be managed. Um, so I think you know, going forward, they're going to look at 
this is something that they're going to expand and contract with business cycle and with their own business operations. So you're right. I think they're going to have more of a contractual relationship with a lot of their employees because they will just scale up or scale down in response to what their business scenario is. Um, and that's going to be a different kind of labor market. And, you know, I mean, very few people will work for the same firm for, you know, for forever. Guys, there's a movement afoot in Washington to offer a tax credit for employers who add jobs. Um, with what you've said about the slack and other factors, um, if you had to choose between that program and a tax credit for capital investment, what would you choose? That's a hard one. Oh, this is always our, our personal opinions only, okay? Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I would definitely go for the capital investment one. Um, I mean, the, the, the problem with a lot of job, you know, tax credits for hiring people is, is you may reward behavior that will have occurred otherwise. Um, there's a lot of reasons why that isn't necessarily effective, particularly if you're looking at smaller firms, which often are the ones that you're trying to incent to do this. Um, it's not clear that the credit would be particularly meaningful depending on what they're getting credited against if they don't have a lot of profits. It's not meaningful to give them a credit. Um, so I, I think the capital investment one would have a better longer term um, outlook. But again, that's my opinion only. So. I agree with, agree with Rick on that. Yeah. By disclosure, we both went to the University of Chicago, so we should have ex expected that. So. Uh, given some of the information you showed, is there a certain inevitability to an inflationary spike, maybe not near term, but say over the next 12, 24 months, given where savings rates are, the excess reserves in banks, unemployment levels? I, I would say that the, the pressure is inevitable, but whether it comes to to fruition or not depends completely on uh, Fed policy. Um, our mandate is to, to adjust interest rates to maintain price stability. If, we, you know, if we're able to follow that, uh, then I would say that inflation shouldn't be as much of a concern as maybe it's being talked about right now. Yeah, and, and as Scott indicated, I mean, we also have different tools. I mean, there's right. all this manipulating our balance sheet at this point, the quantitative easing, the, having the reserves for, you know, uh, paying interest on excess reserves. I mean, there are other tools that we can also manipulate to sort of tamp down inflation other than just adjusting the Fed funds rate. So we have, we have a few more sort of arrows in our quiver than we used to have. Yeah, much more than we've ever yeah. had before. Just as an um, add-on to that gentleman's question about um, modifying the, the bill to modify um, loans and allowing people to, to do refinancing, I think what he's referring to is commercial mortgage-backed securities and being able to, the rewriting of the remit clause, which allow people to contact special services and actually get modifications, mm -hmm. which is great because there's about $40 billion in CMBS loans that are rolling in the next year and a half, and so I think that'll be helpful. But I wanted to ask you guys a little bit about what the FDIC is going to do. Illinois right now, I think, is in the top three as far as bank failures nationwide. And assuming that we've had, what, 130 banks fail already, um, and you know, if you compare that with the number of banks that failed during the savings and loan crisis, which was about eight or 900, we could be a tenth of the way there. So I'm curious to know what you think is going to happen as far as the FDIC um, being more aggressive about going after banks. In some cases, they've been allowing banks with underwater loans that are still performing to continue to carry those loans on their books. And I'm wondering if you think that's going to continue. And if they do end up going in 
and moving into an REO situation, is the FDIC equipped <laughs> to work through that backlog? Um, you're still seeing them, you know, sort of not catching up. You're not seeing a lot of product being released to the market. They're not taking the, the mark to market and doing the discounts and, and wanting to, uh, to take the hit. So I'm, I'm curious to know what you think the pace of that will be and, um, you know, whether the FDIC is really equipped to, 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 to deal with the problem. <laughs> that, that's a hard one to address because it is the FDIC, uh, which is you know a separate entity from us. Um, so I, I don't want to speak for them, um, though we are ourselves a bank regulator, and, and those issues you know are, are being worked out. Um, maybe this is the time where I'll put in a little plug um, for us on, in that re regard. Uh, the supervisory capital assessment program that was done earlier this year, the stress test, in other words, uh, the, that we were heavily involved in. Those are the kinds of issues that I think those more forward-looking programs are better able to assess, better able to handle, and hopefully they will be expanded upon in the future. Uh, I think that, that was shown to be very successful, what they, that they did. They were able to combine not only the knowledge that the regulators have and the supervisors have in, in looking at the day-to-day -day activities of these banks, but also kind of what we do in kind of forecasting what the economy you know, will do. You, it makes sense if you think you know, a rebound is around the corner to maybe you know, ex extend it a little bit. Um, so I, I'm, hoping, I'm hopeful that those kinds of programs will become more common um, going forward. It may alleviate some of the concerns, but like I said, I can't, it's FDIC, I don't know. Any other questions? Just uh, one last question from, uh, I just, can you comment on, uh, with the fuel prices hitting the $3 a gallon mark right now, can you comment how that's impacting the recovery, uh, GDP, and so forth? There's a, there's a, was a simple rule of thumb for every penny of, you know, price and how much it affects you know, the uh, U.S. economy. But what we've seen in the last several spikes is just because of the composition, the structure of the U.S. economy, um, higher fuel prices have less and less of a drag effect on the U.S. economy than they have in previous. Because the old rule of thumb was after World War II, virtually every recession was caused by some sort of spike in energy prices prior to going into that. And then in the last time in which we saw the massive run-up in fuel prices, what was amazing was how little of an effect it had really on trimming U.S. GDP growth. Because again, we don't, we're not as energy intensive in how we produce a dollar of GDP today. And in terms of for households, I mean, it was interesting, there was an article on ComEd today that said that they were concerned because, you know, when they even give consumers the ability to monitor their own electricity rates, they don't tend to do this. That's because as a percentage of their household budget, it's not a very significant part of their household budget. So even trimming their electricity use a little bit isn't, isn't that big of a deal. So I mean, part of it's just structurally we're less energy um, intensive than we've been in the past. So we can absorb higher prices more easily. Okay. Thanks. Uh, thank you, guys. Um, please uh, fill out the surveys that were passed around. And again, round of applause. Thanks. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Rick.